How do you know if you have been diagnosed with prostate cancer, how exactly you choose your best surgeon if you're thinking of removing your prostate? Who do you go to? What does surgical margins mean in terms of when the prostate is removed and the pathology report comes and says, well, there's positive surgical margins. What does that mean? Today, we go over that with Dr. Ash Tiwari, who's professor and chair of the Milton Carroll Petrie Department of Urology at the Icahn School of Medicine at Mount Sinai here in New York. Dr. Tawari has pioneered robotic surgery and has been involved in the development of prostatectomy from its inception. He has performed over 9,000 robotic prostatectomies in his career, and he's one of the few robotic surgeons who's been awarded special grants from the NIH and Department of Defense. We talked about some of the history of robotic surgery in the U.S. He trained with the great Dr. Manny Menon in Michigan, and on his free time, he enjoys time outdoors, long hikes, runs. He takes photos and posts them on Facebook. And he's just a great overall person who I have the privilege of having a relationship with. Dr. Ash Tawari developed, was involved in developing what's called the hood technique in prostatectomy, where that tends to increase the risk of being more continent and preserving nerves for erections and less surgical margins that are positive after prostatectomy. So enjoy this very special conversation on prostate cancer, robotic prostatectomy, its history, and its current approach with Dr. Ash Tawari. Let's go. Welcome to the Dr. Geo Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Geo, where it is my goal and intention to help you optimize your prostate health and how to live better with age. Today, I have the great pleasure of talking to my friend, Dr. Tawari, because you know I have a hard time with my senior people in urology that I talk to saying their first name, but we become such good friends. Ash, thank you so much for being on. It's a late day. I know how your days were. I know they're very early, so I really appreciate you being on. Gio, you are here too at this late hour. So both of us have the similar passion for doing something for the right reason. Absolutely. You mentioned that we should dwell upon a little bit of an history of how the robotics came along. Yeah, I talked a little bit before I hit record. And I, you know, as a naturopathic doctor who does holistic urology, I've been doing it now since around 2003. And I remember, you know, robotic surgery becoming very popular at that time. And the names that came up oftentimes, there were a few, Tawari was one of them back then. So I think you're part of the history because you learned from Dr. Menon. So go ahead. And let's dive into a little bit of that history. When did it start? When did you start? I think when I started learning about robotic and learning about you, and you already had like hundreds of cases in early 2000s. So take us back. So Jill, the year was around 1998-ish. And Dr. Menon was my chair at that time. I had moved from Florida to Michigan, and he was exploring options about how else can we treat prostate cancer other than radical prostatectomy, which he was very good at it. He was trained by Patrick Walsh, and he himself was a good surgeon doing an open radical prostatectomy. But there was always a desire that, can you do it better? And that better was, can we see better, can we bleed less, can we make a smaller cut, 
and can we be more consistent in saving nerves and protecting the continence mechanism. These were the main drivers and uh, exploration was going on. He and I looked at some of the surgeries which were happening in mm -hmm. actually in Europe and Dr. Menon uh, was futuristic enough to mm. look for some surgeons who were doing a straight laparoscopy. He, Valencian and Bertrand, he invited them and my role was to kind of receive them and sometimes they stayed with me at my apartment and sometimes within his apartment and I used to pick them up at the airport and bring them home. Mm -hmm. And we started doing a straight laparoscopic prostatectomy in early before 2000. Were you a fellow or faculty or at that time? So I had a different journey. I was an already trained surgeon, general surgeon, and a urologist from India who had gone to UK to do a fellowship in kidney transplants and pancreatic transplants. Came to UCSF to do a fellowship in prostate and prostate cancer. Came to Florida to continue on that journey and then finally decided to do the boards again third time and I was doing my board certification in Michigan at that time. I happened mm. to have a joint appointment with a Josephine Ford Cancer Center which was there in Michigan. So I had some grants. I used to run my own lab and in the daytime I was a trainee and but a trainee who had pretty experienced surgical background. So so Dr. Menon and I used to talk a lot. I mean, I think we used to have a walks every weekend. We used to move around and look at laparoscopic prostatectomy. Mm -hmm. So we started doing that in Michigan. And I learned with Dr. Menon and I learned with Bertrand Guillermo and learned with Valencian. Fr French surgeons? French surgeons. And they were from Paris. So I then decided to bunch up or kind of pool all my vacations, which I had not taken in a couple of years, and pooled my vacations and go to Paris for about a few weeks. And then started doing it there, got a little comfortable about what we were doing with a straight laparoscopy. Right at that time, right at that time, there was some mm. new technology was being talked about it, and that was known as a robotic surgery. And that robot was in master-slave mm. system which was built by Department of Defense and DARPAs and NASAs to kind of take care of remote surgery. The first goal, I think, was that can you treat an appendicitis in an astronaut when they are in space? So that was the goal. And if we can do an appendectomy mm. for someone who is in space because no antibiotics or no conservative treatment will treat it, you need to do a surgery. And then if you can train the rest of the astronauts into connecting the robot, then someone sitting in the earth can possibly finish that operation. That was the goal. But that robot became a very right. useful tool, not just for this kind of an venture, but also for the battlefield. If there was a gunshot wound to a major vascular artery, and if something needed to be done and there was a trained surgeon remotely, that surgeon can connect through the robot and take care of it. So that was the theme, and this robot initially was built to treat cardiac issues and heart surgeries. Mm -hmm. But somehow it didn't catch that much of an excitement in that field, and there are only two organs in the body which look like heart. One is heart, another is prostate. Oh, interesting. Was Da Vinci the company already at that time? So Da Vinci was the intuitive company was there, and so 
the ceo of davinci came and met with uh, dr menon and i happened to be there in all the meetings and in the dinners and everything and uh, we also wrote some thought process discussions as to what we what this robot can do there was another parallel robot also which was not as sophisticated as the davinci robot so we tried all those things and then we launched on okay let's try doing a robotic prosthetectomy and mm-hmm. basically year must have been 1999 or 2000 and where we started doing it french surgeons used to come and stay with us and as you can appreciate robot is one person is on the console and one person is always on the bedside to help in making this thing happen and initially i got very good in actually bedside because someone had to connect the robot someone had to open the field someone had to safely get in and get out of the abdomen mm. and we took some time in the beginning in finishing these operations and maybe a one a day one a day one a day and then the time came we started doing two a day and then by the time i left michigan in 2004 we were doing four to six a day and i had initial thousand cases i was part of each one of them and at that time in 2004 i had to make a decision that what do i do and i was lucky enough that derekot one who was the professor in chief professor at cornell was a visiting professor in henry ford hospital and then he saw my work and he saw me operate and he likes what he saw and then next thing was i came to new york in 2004 how many have you done already how many robotic prosthetectomies you think you've done by that time uh, my training time and everything in henry ford i was close to 1000 That's what I correct. That's exactly what I sort of heard as a non-surgeon. They were my training cases. They were my training cases and then since then every year I have been doing about 500 of these and I've been doing it for now since 2004 till now you can calculate it's been long number but very early on I got interested in not just being able to do it robotically I was very interested in the anatomy and what is different in terms of rectal function and the continence and all those things and i just came back two days ago from japan giving in one hour talk on each one of these topics one on the hood and one on the nerve sparing and basically the vision helped us lower bleeding helped us and she started doing better and that's been the journey and every thousand cases you have some refinements and every time you learn something new you incorporate that into your practice i became a very mm. strong proponent of looking at anatomy in a different way mainly i was big influence about that the nerves are not that simple that you can call them bundle they are more like in hammock and there are multiple nerves there and in order for you to get a better response you have to save the most of the nerves not just the one in right and left discussion so that hammock concept came we started realizing that there are different layer within the layer around the prostate and the nerves are concealed within those layers and in order for us to tailor the surgery for an individual patient we have to kind of appreciate what's the likelihood that the cancer is trying to escape outside so we did a lot of research on risk of stratification and the grades of nerve sparing then came a discussion about simultaneously i got very invested in mris So early 2006 and 7 not MRI was not that common but I somehow felt that the next big thing which will happen in prostate will be an MRI 
and that MRI helped not only in making a better decision about the biopsy, it helped me in fine-tune the surgeries so that we can get a negative margin and yet save the nerves as many nerves they are savable. We did a lot of research on different aspects of nerve sparing and the continence and all those things. So that has been the journey. And now I'm lucky enough that guess what? Dr. Menon decided to come to New York and he is I saw that. right <laughs> across my office just still mentoring me. So when you don't finish the job first time, he is, he is to finish the job now. Sometimes mentors are like a parent and they teach you the way. And then sometimes, you know, with my parents and with parents as they get older, then sort of you become their parent in terms of helping them along. Has the roles changed? Are you more, <laughs> are you his mentor at this point after all your experience? No, or not. He's still, and, but he's so subtle and, and so kind and... Um... Yeah, he is. He's a great person. He was at NYU for a little bit of time when I first came. I didn't have any time to interact with him. So I look forward to interacting with him soon because he's a he's a legend. He's a legend. And then he's so kind. And then see, he, even if he has to suggest something, he will do it very softly. And so, so I'm lucky. I'm still getting the benefit of him guiding me through. You mentioned a little bit earlier you, that you try to improve your technique to to have so that there could be less positive surgical margins. I just want to, I'm going to assume that much of my listeners don't know exactly what that means. I'm going to explain it and then please correct me if I just get it wrong. Surgical margins, once they remove the prostate, if you look like, for example, an orange, there's a peel in the orange. Then And then once they remove the whole prostate, which in this analogy is the orange in the inside and the peel, Sometimes they put the pathologist puts a little ink on the outside, and if it and if that ink pops out on the peel, let's say on the on, on the outside of the prostate, that that means there's a little bit of cancer outside of the capsule. Um, did I get that right? First of all, I think you did. In in simplistic way, margin positive is one thing which is not positive. Basically, it is in surrogate for saying that there may be some cancer left behind, and then big mm -hmm. maybe. Not always. That Not always. End of it. That may be the end of it, what you're seeing at the edge. But having a negative margin is very priceless. And you have to do your best in getting a negative margin. But this is one operation where you don't have much of an leeway. The tissue is within few millimeters of each other. And on one side is a cancer cell trying to lurk outside the capsule. On the other, there are muscles which are wrapping up the continence mechanism and the nerves are going through and through, almost hugging and touching the edge of the capsule. Mm. So in order to get one right, sometimes you have to compromise the other right. So what mm. we call there is a competing risk of damage to this versus that. And to find a fine balance in which all three things are done, we call it trifecta. Meaning you got a negative margin, you save the nerves and the patient is continent. All three combined, it's a very fine balance. And that's where a lot of pre-planning goes, a lot of decision-making grows. And I personally think that finding a cancer early is in one of the most important aspects in this journey, that if the cancer is already trying to escape outside, it becomes more difficult to save the nerves. While if it is within the capsule, most of us can get the whole cancer out Yet saved enough. And so once you're in there, again, so w once you're in there, you're, by the way, thank you for sharing much of the history there. I, it's remarkable. I'm a little bit of a history buff, so I really appreciate some of those details I didn't know exactly. So thank you so much. So 
so you found, and please, so as we go along in this conversation, Ash, you feel free. You've written also, by the way, is not only that you're a top surgeon, you've written hundreds of papers. And I've saw you've written even up to recently, you have your first author in many papers. So feel free to um, either cite or highlight any research. But I also care about your experience as well, not just the research. I think sometimes we get so caught up in the research. And I think that your experience as someone who's seen, I, I lost the math there, but it looks like it's almost like 10,000 procedures and prostate cancer, you know, that matters uh, quite a bit. So please share both with us as much as possible. So how, so when there is a surgical margin that is, when there's positive surgical margins, I remove the prostate, pathologist says sur positive surgical margins. Does that mean that the surgeon was unable to kind of get it all potentially? Um, there's a minor or some sort of increase of a recurrence. In other words, is it a surgical issue, period, end of story? Or is, it, is there more to positive surgical margins? So positive surgical margin is a fine balance between how much we are aware of that patient's cancer. So, so what happens? You mentioned very well that there is an orange and an appeal. And think about prostate as a pulp of the orange and peel as the capsule. But now imagine this orange wrapped in into the holiday gift boxes. And this orange is coming out in multiple layers of very flimsy paper around it so that you have to unopen those paper covering before you get to see the peel. Mm. So there are two situations. One situation in which while you were opening, you just kind of cut through the peel and you ended up into the pulp. And it can happen because there is an inflammation. It can happen because the capsule or the peel is thinned out. It can happen because that is a weak part of the body or it can happen just because there was not a good vision. That is one kind of a positive margin that you're cut area ended up within the prostate and it touched some of the cancer cells is you are peeling out those papers outside the orange and the pulp itself was leaking outside the peel what we call extra capsular extension what the what we call that there is an extra capsular extra prostatic tissue the cancer is trying to invade through you can take the whole orange out with the peels on it, that's fine, but you are sacrificing the nerve. So if you find a cancer touching when the cancer is already invaded through the capsule or the peel, then it's a different kind of a positive margin. These are two different positive. One is known as intraprostatic positive margin, other is known as extraprostatic positive margin. And then the other part to look at it is which part of the prostate we are looking at it. It's at the urethra, it's at the bladder side, it's at the front, it's in the back, it's at the near the nerves, it's at the apex. Then you look at what extent of area is showing a positive margin. Anything less than one millimeter, two millimeter, three millimeter may mean something different than in seven millimeter of cancer touching the edge. Then you look at it, what the cancer itself and prostate is not the same in the whole prostate, meaning in the same patient, one part of the cancer may be Gleason 6, other may be Gleason 7, and another part may be Gleason 8. 
if the Gleason 6 is touching the edge, it may mean something different than Gleason 8 is touching the edge. Meaning mm. the bad guys were the one which were at the positive margin. So all that combined interpreting the pathology and the positive margin is in art in a nuance. Not every time when you get a positive margin, there will be a PSA recurrence. I would say maybe 40-50% of the time that happens. But that's where you factor in as to what needs to be done. So one of the ways of reducing the positive margin is understanding that patient's anatomy better than anything else. Understanding left is different than right, front is different than back, base is different than apex, meaning you cannot have the same strategy of in cutting particular plane everywhere. You have to modify it. And how do you modify it? Because till you have a Google map of what is happening in that patient's left side versus right side, you won't be able to do that. So we maximize it by doing a special scans, by doing exams, by doing MRIs. And we have a nomogram that we plug in everything into one nomogram and that turns out what's the likelihood of having a cancer extracapsular extension on the left side, right side, front, back, and all those things. Do you have your own nomogram that's different from the Sloan Kettering one that we find on the website? You have your own? Yeah, it, because most of the nomograms just say that whether there will be an extracapsular extension or not. This nomogram tells you whether it be on the right side or the left side. Oh, okay. And that's your own. The rest of us don't have access to it. It's not like you put in some numbers. Published very well. It's been quoted very well. Uh, I think it should be available to anyone. And it's nothing proprietary. I mean, it is. And we have made it out of two different methods. One is using an ultrasound and other is using an MRI. So gotcha. okay. combined, when I'm driving and I have to go to Jersey, I know whether I'm going to take a Harlem River or I can I go to 73 across the street and then take the Henry Hudson Parkway because I know already that there is a jam on one of the roads. So you mm -hmm. tailor the surgery based on a particular patient's anatomy. Then I already, before doing the surgery, I already know that they have a median lobe or not and they have a 40-gram prostate or 17-gram prostate or 170-gram prostate. All that will have an impact as to what's going to happen at the time of surgery. One of the challenges which as a surgeon we have is most of the time we do what we think is the best at the time of surgery, finish the job. Seven days later, we get to know whether or not there was a positive margin. That was a challenge which I tried to address in 2014 with the help of some of the doctors who came from Hamburg. It's known as Martini Clinic. And Alex Hess and some other doctors had initiated a program that used to be called as NeuroSafe. So I was pretty close to them. I called them. I said, Alex, you should come here. They came with their team. They stayed here for about a week. And mm -hmm. we started having the NeuroSafe right in my program. What it means, I finished the surgery. While I'm doing the anastomosis, while I'm doing the lymph node, Pathologist is working in parallel on the pathology right then and there. And within 30 to 45 minutes, I get to know that on the right side, there is a positive margin or there is no positive margin. Because if there is a positive margin on the right side, I can still excise a little extra tissue on the same side. While the patient is still under anesthesia, the patient, you still have the robotic arms in the patient. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on it, maybe 10 minutes extra waiting. It's an actionable information. So I can excise more right then and there, 
and then we looked at what is the concordance between this report and the seven days later report and they will give the seven day later report to 95 percent concordance so that was a major gift which i got and had nothing to do with me only thing was that the pathology department was very collaborative and they went far ahead and they had to invest a lot to make it happen but we initiated that UNEUROSAFE and that was not generated by our department it was a gift i got from germany so that I, I visited i visited so they invited me about seven years ago to the martinique clinic to give a, a talk on lifestyle and natural methods to prostate i was so Im Im impressed with the group there thorsten schlom who's no longer he's in berlin now it was the one that invited me great group jill that is exactly how it happened they had invited me to do a surgery there i did the surgery and while i'm doing the surgery there pathologists came to the operating room and they started coloring it with the yellow and the blue and green and i said what are you doing he said no i'll give you the pathology right then and there and so mm. i i did the surgeries for demonstration there then i said okay now it's time for you to pay back come on over <laughs> and then they did it and then they were the best is friends. that standard how they do it how they do their robotic their surgery there is that what they do currently at initially martini clinic was more of an open but now it is mean 90% of them is robotic Ro robotic and they have a pathologist there yeah yeah to that's how they do it so then have you been able to apply that in your multiple thousands of patients that's what we have done wow okay and what do you call that approach what is the name for that approach out of the respect to them it's a new neuro safe neuro safe thing is that if you have a second chance of correcting your actions you save more nerves so neurosafe that <laughs> that is um that is unique is there so before we go into the hood technique which is another approach that i think you have i had keith kowalsik from georgetown on the podcast who talked about his resnick technique i think he calls it uh, the hood technique is a, another approach before we go there is there anything else that you do that's unique i don't think anything is unique it's just the experience and basically the grades of nerve sparing is in concept which gives me a little bit extra understanding how delicately i try to manage the nerves and what we call a thermal traction free nerve sparing off late i have developed something known as a hydro dissection in which i use water jet to dissect out the nerves that's another issue which we are working on it and there are neat techniques for us to how to achieve a delicate dissection without compromising on the continence or the posterior margins. Speaking of nerve techniques, Ash, you're in, so you're in there, the arms are in there, you're looking at inside the body, and you're seeing that near the nerves, there's potential cancer. So my first question, again, most, almost, I think everybody listening, if not, or most everyone listening are not surgeons. So we're trying to draw an image of how you do what the, the art that you do. You're in there, near the nerves, you see cancer. First of all, is cancer obvious from normal tissue when you're in there? And, and then the second question is, sometimes you have to remove those nerves because there's just too much cancer either around those nerves or in those nerves. Is that typically how it works? So you make a decision while you're there. So first question, does cancer cells, once you're in there, look very uh, similar, very different to normal cells? And how do you determine when do you have to take out the nerves because there's just too much cancer around it? So a lot of it depends on the pre-planning. We shouldn't be over-promising nerve sparing and if someone has a Gleason 9 T3V cancer, 
that's not something which is a good candidate for nerve splitting. Second thing is mm. that with experience, you start seeing things which doesn't look right. You can never be sure without the microscope that it is in cancer invading into the nerve or not, but you know that the planes are not looking right. And before you, you have to have your priority right. Priority is cancer is the goal number one, cancer is the goal number two, cancer is the goal number three, then comes the continent, then comes the sexual function. But in Gleason 7, I can have nerves as a more important goal in my mind because the likelihood of an ultimate mortality and ultimate recurrence and ultimate bony metastasis is lower. But if it's a Gleason 9 and 10, that's a different discussion. So we are writing a paper which is the title is Nerves, Foes or Friends, a deep analysis. So sometimes mm -hmm. in an aggressive cancer, nerves may choose to kind of interact with the tumor microenvironment and so supply it with what we call an angiometabolic switch. And that itself can make the cancer more aggressive. So it's a fine balance between nerves on which side and the nerves, whether they are cholinergic or whether they are sympathetic nerves, they may have a different interaction with the cancer cells. So you are right. Experience helps me up to a point. Pathology gives me the second confirmation, but pre-planning and understanding as to what is important for that patient is in key in the whole journey. So it's not only that you're in there and you're saying, well, there seems to be cancer near the nerves. You're going by the Gleason score as well from the biopsy. From the Gleason score, from the biopsy, from the MRI information about the pyrid, for MRI information of extracapsular extension, whether there is a seminal vesicle involvement, whether there is an abutment, whether there is a broad capsular capsule, whether it's in the front of the prostate at the apex, all those things combined, you kind of, and it's an anticipation also. You start seeing things differently if you're anticipating them to be wrong or abnormal and in right side versus the left side. That's great. Thank you for that. Tell us about the hood technique, which I've read about in some papers that you've written. What's in layman's terms, <laughs> what, what is the approach and how is it different from anyone else who would perform this procedure? I think a lot of people are doing the hood technique, so it's not... Mm -hmm that only I do it. I just happened to kind of talk a little bit more about it and I wrote the papers on that. Mm -hmm. So basically the theme is in prostate cancer surgery, you cannot focus on one thing. I can make most patients continent if I don't have a good surgical margin. I can make most mm -hmm. patients negative margin if I don't worry about the sexual function. So it's the fine balance discussion. So the approach which gets you to have the fine balance between the optimal cancer control, optimal nerve sparing, and still the mm -hmm. continence, that is the balance, and that's where the exposure of the tissue comes. So surgeons do well if they see things in clarity. That's what the theme is. So I think I give the credit of the hood technique to Dr. Bucciardi, who is an Italian surgeon, who came with an approach also known as Ridge sparing approach. Ridge sparing approach is that you go behind in the pouch of Douglas, you take the prostate out, and you work in a little narrow space. And if you take the catheter out, within a few days, the patients become continent. I mean, I think that helps. But that came at a cost of possibly working in a very narrow space, never getting to see the ureteric orifices, having an issue with the median lobe, anosmosis being difficult, working within very precise, very narrow space to the nerve sparing and all those things for the issue and maybe having a little bit extra 
positive margins. So I wanted to get the same concept of early continence without compromising these key goals. So I devised this approach in which I saved the whole entire part of the bladder, bladder to prostate, and that area looks like a hood, and underneath there, there are fibrous tissue, there are veins, there are muscle fibers, and it kind of holds the bladder and the anastomosis together. So at one month, when we look at it, the continence is amazing, but you don't compromise on the margins, you don't compromise on the nerve sparing. So you kind of find in perfect balance of these three things without compromising on the surgeon's approach as to how they do the surgery. And since the structure which I am saving looks like a hood in front of the anastomosis, we call it hood technique. And basically, if the earlier continence, it's very versatile. And you don't compromise on the other two key goals, that is the cancer being out and the nerves being saved if we can. I've noticed, I, I have gotten the pledge of seeing now thousands of patients as well after their prostatectomy for wellness visits, reduce the risk of their recurrence through lifestyle measures and things that I do. I find that many surgeons are just doing a phenomenal job with prostatectomies these days. I find that the incontinence rate is relatively low. I'm talking a little bit generally. Certainly in New York, there are just so many great surgeons and well-experienced, but I find that every many are, you know, doing such a good job and, you know, you know, with their patients and where they are able to recover their continence pretty quickly. What's the learning curve these days? So if I'm a new resident, <laughs> I just started as a resident, what do you think is the learning curve before someone becomes proficient in uh, robotic prostatectomy? I think I'm the wrong guy to answer that question. I'm still working on the process, but <laughs> you need to tweak it. I mean, I think you need to reevaluate your own results. You need to focus on what could have been done different. And really, in this upcoming symposium, which I'm running here, in December 7th, 8th, or 9th or something. We are going to show many videos of the very good nerve sparing and very good continence thing. And then we have the outcomes on those patients. And then we will have the team identify what are the factors. Why do you think he's doing well? What happened right? What could have been done different? So self-evaluation, learning curve is a very artificial number. You need to feel mm -hmm. comfortable. And I leave it to an individual to figure it out what that number is. Some people are rapid learners. So this doesn't get old for you. You've done, I, threw, I calculated a raw number, I don't know, eight, nine thousand, ten thousand. This still, this is still a, you're still learning and perfecting the art. With the Japanese group, trying to tweak a little bit here, tweak a little bit there. I, I, I mean, that's what I do. <laughs> That is great, Ash. I have always admired that part of you. I know that I have so many of your patients who see me for wellness and God, they speak incredibly highly so of you and your procedure and how you do things. Ash, you wrote a paper, a review. So I, I've said this before and the listener is going to say, you know, wow, Dr. Gio says this all the time, but it brings context. When I see patients that have had a history of prostate cancer or have prostate cancer, whether it is that they're on active surveillance, and then I put them on a aggressive lifestyle interventions, and then they they do you know their second or third bi second biopsy, and then it's like negative for cancer. Well, and then people, oh, Gio, how do you treat prostate cancer? We have this patient that you know. Their second biopsy, no cancer, they, and the PSA's dropped, and they did your protocol. Well, I don't know that I treat prostate cancer. 
I'm treating the microenvironment. So I'm a microenvironment prostate cancer doctor, right? After, whether it's active surveillance or after surgery, we want to reduce the risk of a recurrence. I see that oftentimes, sometimes they come to me with a recurrence, with a PSA that's rising after, let's say, surgery. And then they find that their PSA stabilizes pretty nicely for a long time once we do some protocols. Wow. So how do you do this microenvironment thing? Well, there's certain things I'm trying to do. But certainly, I'm trying to reduce chronic inflammation. You wrote a paper, a uh, review paper, maybe in 20, uh, I want to say 20, 2020? 2014 or 15. Uh, on 2014, 15? Yeah. A review, I mean, a great paper on inflammation. Here, you, yeah, as to why, you would think, no, oh, no, he just stays with, you know, all his papers are around surgery and things like that. You wrote a wonderful paper on the inflammatory effects and that it contributes likely to progression of prostate cancer. That is one of the things that I try to address with some of the things I do. Talk a little bit about inflammation. Why did you choose to write that paper? And what is what is your perspective on inflammation and prostate cancer? I believe that inflammation can be friend or an enemy. Inflammation done in a controlled manner can help in the healing. It brings in the right kind of an cells, the neutrophils, the macrophages. But if inflammation persists, then it becomes a chronic problem. And there is a pathway known as NF-kappa-B pathway, which gets involved. There are a lot of cytokines and chemokines which get released. And cancer cells can hijack these very powerful tools, which are normally used for controlling in bacteria, but it gets used by the cancer cells, hacked against the body's own defense mechanism. So it makes the rest of the immune system a little bit more immuno-incompetent. It opens up through the metalloporphyrins and other chemicals, breaks away the some of the stroma around, and cancer gets an access to the nerves and the and blood vessels, and that's when it becomes invasive. Mm-hmm. So inflammation, uncontrolled, lingering for a longer period of time, is not a good thing. And inflammation is a known feature of a metabolic syndrome and obesity and all those things. So I personally feel that managing inflammation is an important part of doctor's journey. I'm not just a surgeon. I'm a prostate cancer doctor. And one in which way I can reduce the load. And that's the reason when I put a patient on an active surveillance, I say, we do the surveillance, you do the activity. And activity is about the food and exercise and eating right and all those things. And same thing happens. I mean, I met someone today, I mean, the, who mentioned that I made him lose 75 pounds. And so I motivate them. I will do push-ups for them in the office to celebrate the number of pounds. Meaning I become involved with them. And I think losing weight and managing the body composition and inflammation and obesity are tied together. I've seen that, by so the way. That's, <laughs> yes, we have to make that. sure. That reduces the recurrence, at least in my mind, gets more patients continuing on an active surveillance. And if anything, that reduces the DVT and all the complications of surgery if you have in more managed uninflamed. By the way, I wrote a paper, another one, two years ago, two of them. One was about verticulitis and Crohn's disease. And if in the pelvis, that can make a prostate cancer more aggressive. So pelvic inflammation 
disease may be a trigger for making cancer more aggressive. And then, of course, I wrote something about the COVID can make the prostate cancer more aggressive. And we may be seeing it right now. That's right. I think we are, actually. And that's very, I have not seen that paper. I'm going to pull it up and put it in the show notes as well. You are... You are a holistic practitioner in every way. I mean, every time we see each other, we talk about different lifestyle measures. You yourself, you may still have a chin-up bar in your <laughs> by your office where, where I've seen you do chin-ups, jump rope. I mean, you are a very active person. And before we started recording, I mean, you were telling me about, you know, you, you're still playing cricket. Where does this come from? I mean, like, who are you? I mean, I mean you know... I had a Jay Shaw on and we were talking about how unhealthy most doctors are and the reason for that and burnout and things like that. You are the antithesis of that. What's going on? Why do you do what you do? I mean, and what is it? What's your program? What's your health regimen like? First of all, we just do the best we can with the tools we have. And I have lost some very important people in my life because of avoidable health issues, which include my dad and my sister. So... Sorry to hear that. And I love doing what I do. And I do mean that there is an investment involved into it. And that investment, if I have to do what I love doing it, I have to invest into my own well-being. And most of the time, if someone meets me in the morning and says, Ash, how are you? My first word really automatically comes, I'm happy. And there are now five, ten people who just poke me to ask me, Ash, how are you? I'm happy. And then they will smile and they will go on. So I, I believe that it's been a very rewarding journey for me and a lot of friends I made, my family support. I mean, I, I've been very lucky with the family. But investment in your health is to be done by you. I, I The toughest part was my undoing some of my diet, which is as in I, I can eat wrong. So, but I have cut it down for the last 10, 15 mm-hmm. years, I think, before I eat. So otherwise, that was an unhealthy thing. So having a re-relationship with the food is very important. Second, being a vegetarian and still getting the proteins and without getting the too much of carb is a balance. So I had to relearn all that. Mm-hmm. I exercise about four times a week. I do invest at least an hour. And if I will get a chance, I will uh, go out and I walk. I don't do too many parties. I don't do it in too many events just because I think the time. So if I have to summarize, I think about sleeping. I sleep well. You do? Uh, I sleep enough when I have to. So I kind of understand the value of sleep. I understand value of food, the way it should be part. And we are athletes. I mean, as a surgeon, I am a pro-athlete. So I have to manage my body according to that because I have to perform and I do about... Every day, three surgeries, three, four surgeries, a lot of patients, but I'm happy. And then the other part, I think, is I've got a really lovely team around friends and employees and team members. They, they really care mm-hmm. about what they are doing. And the atmosphere is of we work hard, but we play hard. I so, love it. so I love at least watching cricket, but sometimes playing badminton and cricket if I can. <laughs> you know, I love what you said. I love what you said. You know, I always say, you know, life is a sport. So you want to train for life. You said, you know, I'm a professional athlete. 
You know, I'm, I do three, four surgeries. And that's a great way. And you got to prepare like an athlete. You have to be like LeBron James or, you know, you know, prepare and take care of your body so you can perform well in life and my, work. And my, I don't let any unnecessary thoughts come to me in the morning time. We don't talk about anxiety provoking. I know that you and Deepak Chopra are friends. I told you before I started record. we started recording at 25 years ago. I think a big part of what I do with holistic medicine, I learned Ayurveda was because of Deepak Chopra. And I met him once a long time ago in a book signing, Seven Spiritual Laws of Success, Quantum Healing, all these great books. Has, has that influenced you, whether it's Deepak's work or something along those lines to take such good care of yourself and look at, uh, look at the, the way you do? I think... The- Deepak definitely is in great influence. He's a personal friend. But having a journey of life and in my own life, I mean, I think late father, my mom, my wife, I mean, I think we, we are balanced and you learn, you reflect. Only thing is I'm in one person guy. I want to be one person better next day, not 20 person. And as long as then I'm consistent, things happen and you reflect, you analyze, you change, you tweak, you're never perfect. You and one other thing which I will always say that I've been on the wrong side of a discussion many times, but I know I will flip and go to the right side. Ash, this has been great. We've learned, I've learned, I know learned more about you uh, during this conversation, all the history, the great work that you do that I was already familiar with, but some of those details, but how you function as a as a person, as a man, as a chairman of a department, of a major department in New York City, it's really remarkable to see all those different elements of who you are and how you do what you do. Because being a chairman is, you know, a lot of work. You have managed to balance everything amazingly well. And I've always admired that. Yeah. Thanks a lot for the kind words. There are always uh, thorns around the roses. So life is a balance of both. You have to learn it. And lastly, I'll say great person, great surgeon, but man, what a photographer on your Facebook page. Those that guy, you want to follow Dr. Ash Tawari on Facebook. Great photography that he, that is a, that he has out there. Great photo. So that's just one extra great thing that you do. So thank you for that. Gio, by the way, for my upcoming symposium, you obviously... It's a lot. Of, I have a lot of followers here, Ash. <laughs> they can come. And, and oh, great. Tell us about your symposium. Symposium is a three-day event. The first two days is about prostate cancer, everything from genomics to racial disparity to continence to sexual function to the PSMA scans and all those things. Excellent. What are the dates? December 7th to the 9th. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. This is a great conversation with Dr. Ash Tawari, Chairman of Department of Urology at Mount Sinai in New York. Ash, have a great evening. Thanks again, brother. Our next sponsor partner has a product I use literally every day. I'm talking about AG1. You know, I've been using green powders mixed in drinks for a long time, and it has not always been a great experience, right? The powder clumps up a little bit. It tastes horrible, but you know what? You chug it anyway because it's good for you. AG1 changed the game. In AG1, you have 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day the right way. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, and energy to help you recover and focus and help you age successfully. To make it easy, 
AG1 is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And now for a brief disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and we're not forming a doctor-patient relationship through this medium. The use of the information and all links associated with this podcast is at the listener's risk and is not to replace medical advice from a physician or a healthcare practitioner. Lastly, Thoughts and opinions related to this podcast are my own and may not reflect the views of any institution or organization I'm associated with. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Dr. Geo podcast. You can watch all episodes of this podcast and much more by subscribing to my YouTube channel on youtube.com forward slash Gio Espinoza ND. If you love what you heard today, you can help by leaving a five-star review of the podcast on Apple and Spotify, as each review helps us reach more men who are serious about improving their urological health and how to function better with age. And for the latest research and actionable takeaways in the world of men's health and integrative urology, sign up for my newsletter at drgeo.com. I'll see you next time.